The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I've practiced as a geotechnical engineer for over 17 and a half years. And in addition to practicing engineering, I enjoy mentoring young engineers and first-generation college students. I've focused on helping to increase the number of pre-college students that are interested in STEAM majors and field. By STEAM, I mean science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Chris Woods, who is a geotechnical engineer with over 20 years of project-related experience throughout the continental United States and vice president for the Virginia-based Dynamic Compaction Specialty Contractor, Densification Inc. We will be talking about the importance of relationships in construction, transitioning from consultant to contractor, and the importance of involvement in industry organizations and the applicability of dynamic compaction. Before I tell you more about our guest, I'd like to let you know that the Engineering Management Institute, the publisher of this podcast, has recently launched two brand new YouTube channels, How to Pass Your PE Exam and How to Pass Your FE Exam. They will be focused on helping engineering professionals like you prepare for these career-changing exams. And now, I'd like to formally introduce you to our guest, Chris Woods, PE, Lead AP, BD, Plus C, and most recently, ASCE Fellow. Chris Woods is Vice President for the Virginia-based Dynamic Compaction Specialty Contractor, Densification, Inc. Prior to joining Densification, Chris spent over 13 years as a geotechnical engineer practicing throughout the eastern seaboard of the United States, as well as in Southeast Asia. Chris earned his Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering degree from Purdue University and his Master's degree in Geotechnical Engineering from Virginia Tech. Chris's project experience ranges from large-scale retail developments, schools, and government facilities to high-rise residential and office structures, arenas, stadiums, and waterfronts. His geotechnical consulting experience includes design of shallow and deep foundation systems, evaluation of earth slope stability, design of retaining walls, design of ground improvement programs, geotechnical instrumentation monitoring, and extensive construction oversight. And with that, We'll get right into our conversation with Chris Woods. Welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Chris, I introduced you earlier in the show, but, uh, you know, in your own words, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what do you do at Densification Inc.? First of all, I appreciate you having me on. It's a great opportunity. Good to, always good to talk to you. As far as is my job now with, with Densification Inc., you know, I've been working with the company for about eight years, presently serving the role as, as vice president. You know, we have two vice presidents where the delineation of responsibility is. I kind of more of the business and engineering half. 
our other vice president more deals with keeping the cranes going. But as a specialty dynamic compaction contractor, really the only one in the country that actually focuses just on dynamic compaction, that's what I'm doing on a daily basis. I'm working with clients. I'm working with engineers. I'm working on writing proposals with clients to try and get work. I'm working with engineers to design work as it comes in. And then as the jobs are there in the field, providing support and, and kind of oversight, hey, we have different soil condition here. We have a problem here. We got weather here. You know, what's the right way to go about it? What do we got to do to fix this? Being a smaller, you know, family owned and run company, it, it really is kind of across the board, right? Vice president means a little bit of everything. That's awesome. When you say family owned, what generation is this or how long has it been around? Our owner, uh, Joe Drumheller, founded the company back in, in uh, 93. Our other vice president that I mentioned, Rob Schaefer, he's been with the company probably pretty much since Joe started the company. And now his son, Sam's working with us as well. And so kind of the four of us would be the, the leadership team, the brain trust, if you will, that are running the company. Sometimes you got to throw the ball. Other times you got to catch the ball. And as some people say, then sometimes you are the ball, right? That's it. Yeah. You have to have close working relationships between your clients and the contractor in order to have a project success. That's what I've learned as an engineering consultant. But can you tell us a little bit more about what that relationship looks like and how do you keep good relationships with clients? Like, How do you have it so that somebody will call you again for another project? Anyone that knows me in this industry for any period of time has probably heard me say it at least once, but I mean, it's, it is entirely about relationships. Coming from being a consultant for many years, you know, working with you, there's relationships with owners, with other consultants, with architects. Fast forward now to the contractor side, those relationships are the same thing. Maybe it's not dealing as much directly with the owner. Maybe now I'm dealing more with general contractors with us being in a role of a sub, but managing those relationships, right? Making sure you're getting jobs done right on time without having to go back and redo stuff or identifying problems ahead of time that you know may come up in the field so that it's not just a, I don't know what you want me to do, you figure it out kind of thing. You know, working through solving those problems. That's where the engineering piece comes very much still into play being a contractor, that you're in this role of solving problems. I mean, that's that's what we do for a living as engineers. So ensure the jobs are, are getting done. You know, and even going back to the time of, of bidding and, you know, I mean, I probably spend half my week sometimes with geotech reports that have been written and sent to me by contractors we've worked with before that maybe for whatever reason they see surcharge and in their mind they're thinking, oh, this is going to take a long time. Or they see piles and they think, oh man, this is going to be expensive. So they'll send it to me and say, well, can you just pound it? And we go on and sometimes I can take a look at it and this makes sense as an alternative. And, and sometimes there may be 58 houses next door that we're going to rattle the china off the walls. And the answer is absolutely not. But that's also a big part of the relationship part by telling people what, not necessarily what they want to hear, but what actually is. And so there's a fair amount of times where, you know, especially some of our biggest, most trusted clients where I have to look at them and say, guys, this is not the right fit for us uh, for these reasons. And you ought to be talking to contractor X or contractor Y about a different sort of technology or a different approach here. So open lines of communication is going to be crucial for that. You kind of hinted at it before, but um, you made an interesting transition from being a consultant 
to being a contractor. And I think that in school, I mean, even in grad school, we hear about the consultant, we hear about the contractor, we hear about how they work together, or maybe sometimes they don't work together. But I, like I said, as a young consultant, it's like, I didn't really learn it until I was out in the field and see how we all work together. What made you decide to do that? And what are the differences being on a consultant side versus being on the specialty contractor side? I think ultimately, I probably was always destined to be a contractor just, you know, based on the sort of free will and ability here, right? It's for eight years. Oh, what's the biggest thing about being a contract? I haven't turned in a timesheet in eight years. You don't miss timesheets at all? I don't miss timesheets even even a little bit. It's a different kind of pressure. It's not a billable hour pressure or a bottom line revenue pressure, but it's it's a pressure of we have to get jobs, we have to get them done, and then we have to get paid for them. That's ultimately, in a nutshell, what my job comes down to now. In terms of transitioning from coming as a consultant to now, having that knowledge base of being on so many different types of projects, seeing so many different types of foundation technologies, ground improvement technologies, geological settings, different parts of the country and the world, frankly, I don't know that I would be able to be as effective as I feel that I am now as a contractor, not having that as a, as a background, because that's you know a big part of what allows me to When I get these other geotech reports in and I have contractors call me, hey, what do you think about this? Well, I think this doesn't work here because of this. And you're able to have conversations that are not just, you're not just speculating, but you're frankly drawing from this point, 20 years of of experience. That's probably been the biggest, you know, going from being a contract or being a consultant to being a contractor is having that knowledge base to draw upon now, especially since now I'm in this role of, I do one technology and we do it more than most people in the country. And that's what my focus is. It's not being around with all these different technologies. So what works and where it works and why it works has been pretty important to this. Now, when you think about being a contractor, I'd have to imagine it's important to continue to grow yourself, continue to grow your team, continue to grow your business. And I see from the example you've set, congratulations on just becoming a fellow, American Society of Civil Engineers. That's awesome. Thank you. It seems that one of the best ways to do that is to join an association. Now, we have listeners that are still in school. We have listeners that are kind of new in their career and then, you know, seasoned experts like yourself. Can you share a little bit more about the importance to geotechnical engineers and students to get involved in industry organizations and why you've done it? You want to share a little bit about that? Well, it all comes back to what I just said before. It is entirely about relationships. Those relationships take a lot of different forms in this industry. Some of it is the owner-client relationship. Some of it is the engineer-contractor relationship. But what it all boils down to is relationships, networking, getting out to know people, to provide yourself opportunities to you know, engage in projects and, and work. It's important to understand what other people are doing. It's important to understand who those people are and what they're doing. Some of the organizations that I've been trying to be active as possible in is, you know, with Deep Foundations Institute, being on committees, going to the annual events, going to the regional events, things of that nature where you're just meeting people, you're bouncing ideas off each other. So if you think back to when I was talking about the fact that sometimes the job's not exactly the right fit for me. Well, okay, that's a helpful thing to tell somebody. But what's One more step beyond that helpful is, okay, this is, I can't help you on this project, but this guy can. And being able to then 
make those connections. Understanding what people are doing, where they're doing it, how they're doing it is a big part of those organizations. Understanding how technology is advancing comes with it. Just the general knowledge and relationship building that you're able to gain from being a part of, you know, Deep Foundations Institute, Geo Institute, things of that nature. I think that one of the surprises, especially to folks young in the field, is that I'm sure you bid against folks that sit in these conferences. You still need to know who they are, right? It's still important to have those relationships. And you made a very good point to tell a client that uh, my technology won't work here. Bye. It does. It. They're like, well, what do I do now, right? And if you can point them in the right direction, that that definitely is going to make them think about you the next time when your technology might be appropriate. Absolutely, and and. I view those sort of relationships as, as two-way streets with a lot of people. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, ground improvement contractors around the, the country that maybe don't do dynamic compaction. But when a job comes up where that is an appropriate solution, I get calls from people all the time, hey, so-and-so told me to give you a call. It's just being transparent with owners and just being honest. You can't sell something that you can't do or you can't achieve. And so being able, again, to just kind of bounce jobs off, off each other and with colleagues in the industry that, again, you meet at these sorts of events that take place around the country, that's very strong way to gain the trust of, you know, in my instance, the general contractors or the developers that, that we're working with. And what do you think is an appropriate time to start getting involved with an organization? You know, as early as possible. Back in the early days, you know, when we're running around Jersey and New York and everything, trying to go to some of these events. and. You know, I remember within the first eight months of, of working with Langan, you know, going to my first national ASC, you know, Geo Institute conference and kind of sitting in the, in the crowd and just in some of these lectures going, you like you feel a little lost, but it's how you start to gain your footing on what people are doing and, and what different things are out there. And so maybe as an entry-level staff engineer, you're not going to go to the DFI annual conference and walk around that exhibit hall and talk to this guy about that job and talk to this guy and talk to this girl and talk, you know, you're not going to do that necessarily, but you're going to go and you're going to be exposed to the companies that are involved and what these companies are. And one, it's going to help you just better understand the industry. Understanding the industry then inherently is going to help with your career path because you may kind of guide yourself, hey, I, that looks pretty interesting. I mean, you know, dynamic compaction, I was involved in a lot of dynamic compaction jobs early in my career that led to my relationship with, with Joe and ultimately with working with him. I wouldn't have necessarily, you know, gotten involved in, in some of those things without being out, seeing what people are doing in different places. Especially as geotechnical engineers, there are some technologies or approaches or design, design solutions that are kind of common for a given area, but then there's something that's being done in another part of the world, another part of the states, or another part of the state you're in, but just a different part with a geological standpoint. If you don't know that that's something that you can consider, you're not even going to look into it. So when we talk about deep dynamic compaction, let's focus on that for a little bit. Some of our listeners may not have any idea we're talking about. Can you break it down for us? What is deep dynamic compaction? What is it that you do? What is the magic behind it? What is it that you're doing? The way I like to explain it in my elevator talk is that we're the brute force method of ground improvement. We pick weights up and we drop them. You know, I'm grossly oversimplifying it, maybe not grossly. So the idea is that, you know, we have these cranes and these large weights that are, you know, sometimes 10 tons, sometimes 20 tons, and you're dropping them 
on the ground repeatedly to introduce high energy to the ground to compact a loose or uncontrolled soil mass. So whether that's an uncontrolled fill that by IBC, by building code, has zero allowable bearing capacity, right? So you've got to do something to it to make it a controlled situation that a foundation engineer or consultant can ultimately rely on. Okay, here's your foundation design. Could be a loose sand that you're trying to mitigate perhaps a, a liquefaction concern. It could be mine spoils, turn, strip mine turnover. We've done you know lots of jobs on sites like that. Uh, we've even gotten a, a few times into these sort of karst sites where maybe you're not the Cadillac solution of a drilled pile and structural slab that might be real expensive. But if you've got a, a lower threshold for risk on a job, we've gone around and, and probed around a site, dropping the weight, looking for soft areas that might be indicative of, of solution zones in the bedrock below. The vast majority of, of the jobs we're involved in have to do with uncontrolled fills and densifying those sort of granular uncontrolled fills. That's probably the majority of it. What type of information do you need before you get started? I mean, is it just a geotechnical report and borings? Do you need CPTs? Do you need test pits? Like, what do you need? So it's a couple of things, right? Whenever I get a call, it's, it's, what do you need? Well, I need whatever subsurface information you got. And I need an address to put this thing into Google Earth. And I mentioned it, right? We're picking up these, you know, 10 to 20 ton weights and we're dropping them from 50, 60 feet in the air. You can imagine that a bad actor in that scenario is construction-related vibrations. So that's why I want an address for Google Earth, because I need to look and see what's around us. Or is this maybe the geotech report, maybe the borings indicate that from a soil standpoint, this is a textbook site in terms of granular material that can be very readily compacted with dynamic compaction, but it's in the middle of a neighborhood and you've got a bunch of houses around you that basically take it off the table altogether as, as an option. So it's really kind of looking at the whole thing. It's not just the boring log, but it's the boring log and the, the surrounding area to, to make sure that you're coming up with an appropriate solution for the entire thing. And in the case where you have adjacent structures, the vibrations and the noise, I imagine that's an issue too, right? Or could be an issue. It could be. It's it's generally a little bit less. I think it's really not that much more significant than regular earth moving equipment, dozers, rollers, things like that running on a site. It's more of a kind of dull thud off in the distance, but definitely the vibrations can be an issue. And so understanding not just the distance of structures, because you know the type of structure also plays a, a pretty big role, whether it's a single family residential is, is kind of a worst case scenario for us because every single homeowner is going to come out. And if you don't have a proactive owner who's engaging their consultants properly to do pre-construction documentation efforts, showing where cracks may be and damage may be. Every single homeowner that even remotely can feel a vibration, this doesn't go just for dynamic compaction, it's really construction vibrations in general. If that's not in place, you're gonna have the old lady down the street coming out, running about, you know, yelling about all the cracks in her driveway and the cracks in her foundation. There may be cobwebs coming out of them. You did it, just ask, right? So. That's definitely the bigger concern, you know, when it comes to our line of work. Is there a design that um, gets put together? Is it more we try it and then we do some type of test to see how it worked? The initial kind of does it pass the smell test is based on experience, your gut. You know, I mean, we've collected a lot of data over the years on, on different sites, understanding what vibration levels may be as they dissipate with distance. 
And so understanding the type of structure, whether it's you know single family residential is one thing. If you've got an industrial structure, there's not a lot of people in or something like that, a warehouse, you may have a, a much higher tolerance. If it's a utility in the ground where the utilities are all, you know, the ground, everything's moving together, that can even take a higher level of vibration. So it's critical to understand what the nature of the structures are, what the use is, and then you can kind of back into what you think the vibration levels are going to be. And then always your first step when you get on site is to conduct a site-specific test where you you set up seismographs 25 feet, 50 feet, seven, and, and you want to see how those vibrations kind of dissipate with distance right off the bat so that you can plan for, do we need seismic cutoff trenches, which are just trenches that might get dug between the site and a nearby structure to help mitigate those vibration levels. Do we need to consider things like lower drop heights, more drop, you know, altering the design type things. But the idea is by collecting that data right off the bat, you may do that in an area of the site that's not going to affect neighboring structures so that as you work toward those areas, you already have those solutions in place rather than just a, you get to a, you know, you start in a, a perhaps a critical area and throw up your hand, oh, what are we going to do now? You want to collect as much information as you can up front. From the standpoint of uh, making sure it works, does somebody usually go out afterwards and then do test borings to see how it compares? Are you looking at crater depths? I mean- How do you walk away? The answer is yes to all that. In an ideal situation, we like to work, you know, the best case is all, and I'm sure you see the same thing being a consultant. There's nothing more frustrating than than being the consultant on a job and then the owner not engage you for the construction phase of oversight. Well, we feel that on the contractor side, man. We want the engineer out there, not necessarily to direct us because, you know, we are being considered the experts by being brought in on it, but just the consultants are familiar with the site to a certain degree that maybe we're not, I mean, we own 30 cranes that we just kind of move around the country and we come in to do a job and then, and then we may move the crane somewhere else. So we rely on those local consultants to kind of help identify issues and, and, you know, be able to talk with them. So yeah, to your point, you're looking at things like crater depth, you're looking at, you know, if we're doing seven drops at a certain point or after the fourth drop, the fifth drop, is it going into the ground last kind of indicating that you're getting that densification process happening. So that's like a, a first litmus test. Like, hey, if all of a sudden you're working around an area, you have a bunch of four foot, say, deep craters, and you get into a part of the site where you have all of a sudden eight, nine foot deep. Well, we have a completely different condition now. What are we going to do about it? Do we want to put some stone in it? Do we want to put some material in it? Do we have to hit it again? Because the ultimate end game is, yeah, a lot of times if there's been CPTs done ahead of time or SPT done ahead of time, you may come out after the fact and do some post-improvement testing to kind of compare your before and after condition. And you really don't want to have that post-improvement testing be a, a gotcha, right? So you want to be able to adjust your program as you're going to really see those good results in the field so that ultimately that testing you're going to do after the fact is more just kind of your proof that you may need it to bring to the building department you know, as part of um, to pull a foundation permit, some municipalities would would require some sort of report talking about the effectiveness of your ground improvement. Those borings sometimes are done by me, sometimes they're done by the consultant. It, it all depends on how the project may be structured with the owner. I mean, that's thank God for Brian Wazner. Back in the day, he gave me a uh, a spreadsheet that was helpful on on tracking continuing education credits. I mean, 
that's one thing as I've transitioned into this role of working as a contractor across the country, I think I'm at this point licensed in like 24, 25 states. It ultimately is needed because, you know, we go into these different places and I need to provide signed and sealed uh, reports after the fact as a full design build effort on our part. Sometimes we work with engineers that really do understand the process and they want to retain more control of the process during the work to be able to say, no, we want you to hit here. We want to do this. We want to do, and they might do the borings and, and kind of issue that summary certification, whatever you want to call it, to the owner after the fact. We might have a listener that's thinking, wow, maybe this will work on my site. Just from a high level, where does deep dynamic compaction work? Where does it not work? Like I'm thinking different soil types. I'm thinking a depth of groundwater. I mean, what are some rules of thumbs for somebody? You want to focus on predominantly granular soils. So when I see geotech reports that they're recommending a surcharge, what do you think? Well, I think even looking at the geotech report that somebody's recommending a surcharge because there's a soft clay or an organic, right? So that's the kind of stuff that that doesn't work. Uncontrolled fills, again, that's a pretty big spot for us. Loose sands, really kind of the granular stuff. We do get in, you do shift gears into more of a clayier type soil when we, I mentioned mine spoils. Those are not necessarily a structured clay, saturated clay material, but more of a conglomerate of rock fragments and gravel and sand and clay that absolutely can be, you know, improved more of like a compressive type effort as opposed to punching down these these different craters. So those are probably the big ones, uncontrolled fills, sands, mine spoils. We are getting, you know, more and more into hitting landfill type materials even to the point where, you know, some people have started putting buildings on on top of them, which has always been a bit of a concern for some because, you know, you just have that potential for such long-term degradation and settlement under landfill material. But if it's a relatively thin layer, you could get away with supporting structures on that. The deeper areas of that, we still might hit trash, but it might be under parking areas or to come in and, and gain airspace in a, in a landfill they got more room to bring in additional material or even to kind of hit below where, where a liner might go. You're mitigating against longer term settlement there. And what about the depth of groundwater? What if you have shallow groundwater? Does that rule you out or? Shallow groundwater can be a pain if you've got a more silty type sand fill scenario, you know, silty, clay, lower permeability. Because ultimately what happens is when you pound on the soil like this, if you are below the groundwater, you are essentially liquefying the soil, right? You're producing this energy, you're liquefying it and allowing it to settle and, and sort of recompact itself. When you're in a medium that that drainage can't occur that readily, then that can become a problem. Sometimes if you've got groundwater within, you know, two, three feet of the site, it can become a challenge because you build up those pore pressures. They might come into the craters. It makes it very difficult to work around the surface. So in those instances, you know, we have seen some places where the groundwater has been lowered prior to the work going on. More often, it's better to try and put some fill and build up to gain some separation there. If you're more than five, six feet down with the groundwater, it generally doesn't play that big of a deal, you know, and you're able to get that improvement. We generally, you know, look for 20 to 25 feet of improvement is what you can, I think, reasonably rely on with this compaction. So... Word of advice to somebody that may want to pursue a similar career to yours. What, what advice would you give them? Work hard. 
you and I cut our teeth in, in the same place, you know, New York and New Jersey and putting in those hours on, on drill rigs and on construction sites. And whether you're going to start out on the contracting side and go through, or you start on the consulting side and end up as a contractor like I did, in either scenario, you are not going to be as effective without having that, that time in the field to see how things actually work. You need to see construction projects that go well. You need to see construction projects that are an absolute dumpster fire, right? You need to see these things because I think back to, you know, when we would, you know, Langan does the geotechnical workshop every year. And I, one of my favorite things every year was listening to George Derrick talk about the failures, the jobs that went wrong. You need to be in the field. You need to have dirty boots. You need to see how things actually work. And so whether that's as a consultant being involved in, in the field side of things, whether it's a contractor as a lower level staff guy, an assistant sort of PM on a job site, either way, you need to be out in the field, you need to be putting in the hours and, and you need to see how these things work. And then as you sort of build up that knowledge, then you'll know where your career path is taking you. You'll meet people, you'll gravitate towards people, you'll do things like you know, end up in Turkmenistan, right? Watching nine dynamic compaction cranes going, you know, you'll get some hints as you go. I take it that wasn't a hypothetical. No, that was not a hypothetical. I mean, that, Mark Gallagher called me in my office and said, hey, uh, we got a dynamic compaction project and uh, you're going to go Turkmenistan. And my first thing was, where's Turkmenistan? Look it up. These things happen, but jumping in opportunities like that. I've been very fortunate. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to places like Turkmenistan. Now on the contracting side, I've still ended up in a consulting role uh, occasionally. I've been to China to go see dynamic compaction work. So it's taking advantage of those opportunities. You don't say no and and you get on the field and you see as much as as you can see. If you raise your hand and say yes, sometimes you don't know how you're going to do it. It forces you to figure it out. So that sounds awesome. You may end up in some spots sometimes where you're kind of scratching your head saying, how did I get here, right? It's no experience is bad experience, man. You're going to pull, you're going to lean back on that experience. You're going to think about it. You're going to, at some point in time in your career, these things you see, these people you interact with, you're going to lean on it. You're going to know, ah, man, I tried this one way with this contractor on a site. This didn't work. So let me try, you know, this way. I mean, even in shifting into this phase of my career, right? I mean, being from Jersey, working in New York, working in the Northeast, right? You know how it is. In New York, If sometimes if you're not screaming loudest, you're not winning. That doesn't necessarily work in Georgia or Kentucky, or, right? You just, again, you have to learn different people around different parts of the country work different ways. And that's, you know, the same thing in, in a lot of aspects of this industry. Thank you so much, Chris. We're going to take a moment, take a break, and then we're going to come back with our career factor safety in segment. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It's time for our career factor of safety in segment. In geotechnical engineering, like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about factoring in a factor of safety for your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with none other than geotechnical engineer Chris Woods. Chris, we spoke about your transition earlier from being a consultant to being a specialty contractor. What advice would you give to geotechs that are listening that are considering doing something similar in their career? 
How can they build security into their careers by giving themselves a factor of safety? So my take on this is twofold, and it comes back to what I've kind of harped on a little bit, relationships. Relationships are everything. And so with this, you've got relationships that you're forming throughout your career, going back to you being the guy sitting on a drill rig, you know, two weeks into having a job as a consultant. You don't know where your relationship with the people you're working at three months into your career may come into play six years down the road when you're looking to make a move. So always valuing those relationships, understanding the people you're working with and treating people the right way. Because again, construction is, it can be a very testosterone, like who can yell louder type, you know, environment. And so really managing those relationships that you don't know when they're going to come up down the road is important. The second part of this that I would say is those relationships you have that you've developed, ask people, ask for advice, ask for guidance. You know, I can't tell you how many times since I've kind of shifted from being a consultant to being a contractor that I've had people reach out to me. And maybe it's not exactly the consultant to contractor move, but my close friends that, that worked with us at Langen just probably about six months ago, I talked to him at length about he was very hesitant about leaving consulting to go into the development side. He knew that I had, you know, left consultant to go do something else. And so he asked me a lot of questions and, and looked for advice and guidance on that. So those people that you trust that are in the industry, you know, lean on those people because a lot of times they have no vested interest one way or the other, whether you're going to make a, a job move. So they're going to probably shoot you pretty straight as, does this make sense? Does it not? Are you thinking about all the the right things in making a move? Are you doing something hastily because you're angry about something that happened, you know, in the short term that maybe is not the best reason to make a career move? Or is it you want to relocate? Or is it you're tired of of this angle of the business and you really would like to be more in the field? Or they may help ask those questions that have you thoroughly examined where you're going or where you're trying to go. Thank you so much for all that you shared. Thank you for coming on the show. And I appreciate the insights. I appreciate what you're doing as an engineer as well for the industry. And you share great information. I'm sure it's going to help our listeners. And if our listeners wanted to find you, how can they find you? You got an email address or LinkedIn or anything on social media you feel like sharing? I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my email address is pretty simple. It's just chris at densification.com. And our website is just uh, densification.com. So the website, the my email, LinkedIn, any of those things. I'm pretty well out there. So it's it's not too difficult to find me. And, uh, you know, Jared, I've been watching these podcasts, you know, since you've started this. And I very, very much appreciate the opportunity to come on here and kind of talk to you, you know, about my career and and hopefully someone gleams something out of this that, that helps them with a the decision down the road. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, man. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 13, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. 
For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.